Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast, based on the Morning Report series from Elsevier. This podcast has been adapted for audio in collaboration with series editor Dr. Raj Dasgupta, as well as the volume editor for each book. Each episode features an in-depth case dissection format and aims to deliver practical, concise, and easy-to-digest information. And now, here's today's episode. Hi, my name is Dr. Parasu Khalesi Hosseini, and I'm going to be reading through case 39 with you, titled 17-Year-Old Female with Fatigue and Yellow Eyes, written by Dr. Fenton and Dr. Pitsek. Let's begin. A 17-year-old previously healthy female presents to your clinic with one week of fatigue, malaise, and diffuse body aches, in addition to her eyes turning yellow. She has had nausea and a five-pound unintentional weight loss. Her urine appears darker yellow. Her skin is also more yellow in appearance. So what is the differential diagnosis? The yellowing of the eyes and skin indicate jaundice, which is, in turn, caused by an elevation of serum bilirubin levels. Causes of hyperbilirubinemia can be divided into prehepatic, which is indirect or unconjugated hyperbilirubinemia, hepatic, which is mixed hyperbilirubinemia, and posthepatic, which is direct conjugated hyperbilirubinemia. Prehepatic jaundice is caused by the overproduction of bilirubin, indicating a hemolytic anemia. Hepatic jaundice is caused by inadequate processing of bilirubin in the liver, which is seen in disorders that result in hepatocellular injury and or liver failure. Post-hepatic jaundice is caused by problems with excretion of bilirubin from the biliary system, such as cholestasis. Time for a basic science pearl. Acute liver failure is defined as the triad of abnormal liver test results, encephalopathy, and coagulopathy, whereas acute liver injury without failure is defined by abnormal liver tests without encephalopathy or coagulopathy. Case point 39.1. Her mother has systemic lupus erythematosus, or SLE. There is no family history of jaundice, liver disease, other autoimmune diseases, or hemolytic anemia. She's afebrile and all other vital signs are within normal limits. On physical examination, she has scleral icterus and jaundice. Her liver edge is palpated 3 centimeters below the right costal margin at the midclavicular line. It is non-tender and soft. Her abdomen is otherwise soft, non-tender, and not distended. And there's no splenomegaly or ascites. The remainder of her physical exam is normal. So what is your differential diagnosis at this point? The enlarged liver suggests the hepatic cause of the hyperbilirubinemia, although cholestasis should also be considered. Given the acute onset of the patient's illness, infections and drug-induced liver disease should be high on the list. Viral infections to consider include hepatitis A virus, hepatitis B virus, hepatitis C virus, hepatitis E virus, Epstein-Barr virus, cytomegalovirus, and human immunodeficiency virus. Hepatitis A virus and hepatitis E virus are transmitted through water or food contaminated by the feces of someone who has these viruses. Blood transfusion as a neonate would have put her at some risk for hepatitis B, hepatitis C, and HIV. 
Although contaminated blood products would be extremely rare in the United States due to routine screening. Additionally, hepatitis B virus vaccination is nearly universal in children in the United States. Cholestatic hepatitis can uncommonly occur with EBV and CMV infections. The lack of complaints of fever, rash, and sore throat and the absence of adenopathy and splenomegaly on physical examination make these viral infections less likely in our patient. Hepatitis A virus usually causes mild disease in children. In adults, it can present with fulminant liver failure. Hepatitis A virus infection should spontaneously resolve in an immunocompetent host. Time for a clinical pearl. Hepatitis E virus can cause epidemics of infection, usually in developing countries. Like hepatitis A virus, it usually resolves with only supportive care. However, in pregnant women in certain geographic areas, it is associated with miscarriage, fulminant hepatic failure, and death. Given the acuity of her symptoms, drug-induced liver injury, or DILI, is also high on the differential. Acetaminophen is the most common drug of choice used in suicide attempts in teenage females. Measuring a blood level of this drug is a simple and rapid test, and early treatment with N-acetylcysteine can potentially prevent a patient from going into fulminant liver failure. Alcoholic hepatitis is another consideration in a teenage patient with acute symptoms. However, this is more common with chronic alcohol abuse in the setting of pre-existing liver disease. Time for a clinical pearl. If acetaminophen overdose is left untreated for three to four days, weakness, hematuria, blurred vision, tachycardia, confusion, coma, and or death can occur. Although hepatomegaly suggests the hepatic cause of the jaundice, Cholestasis should still be considered due to its high prevalence. Gallstones, with impaction in the common bile duct, commonly cause a cholestatic jaundice that would be associated with severe pain in the right upper quadrant. Gallstones are usually seen in those with obesity, pregnancy, rapid weight loss, and hemolytic disease. Cholestasis of pregnancy can present with jaundice and pruritus but usually occurs in late pregnancy. So what other liver diseases should be considered in a teenage girl? After infections, drug-induced liver injury, and cholestasis, less common diseases that should be considered include Wilson disease, alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, and autoimmune disease. Wilson disease is a rare inherited disorder of abnormal copper storage in the liver and other organs. Along with jaundice, it can present with neurological and psychiatric symptoms due to the deposition of copper into the basal ganglia. The total bilirubin in Wilson disease can be extremely high due to a combination of liver disease and hemolysis seen with copper overload. Alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency results from a mutation in Serpina A1, which encodes alpha-1 antitrypsin, a serine protease inhibitor secreted from hepatocytes. The mutation results in the accumulation of abnormal alpha-1 antitrypsin protein that hepatocytes cannot secrete. Hepatocyte inflammation and eventually scarring result. 
Both diseases can present in the teenage girl with a wide clinical spectrum, from asymptomatic elevated transaminase levels all the way to fulminant liver failure. Time for a basic science pearl. Alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency can result in early adult-onset chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, also known as COPD. Also high on the differential would be autoimmune diseases, particularly given a family history of SLE. Autoimmune diseases to consider include autoimmune hepatitis, primary sclerosing cholangitis, and SLE or inflammatory bowel disease with liver involvement. Primary sclerosing cholangitis is more common in males, and about 80% will also have ulcerative colitis. So what laboratory tests are indicated? Serum chemistry should be ordered to characterize the hyperbilirubinemia, both unconjugated or indirect and conjugated or direct. Serum bilirubin levels should be measured. If the indirect fraction is greater than 80% of the total, hyperbilirubinemia is most likely resultant from hemolysis, whereas if it's less than 80%, the cause is most likely hepatic or cholestatic jaundice. Additionally, a complete blood cell count and reticulocyte count can help rule out hemolytic anemia. Time for basic science pearl. The one liver disease that violates the 80% rule in Wilson's disease is Wilson's disease because both direct and indirect bilirubin levels are elevated due to the hemolysis induced by copper overload. Other serum chemistries are helpful to evaluate the liver and biliary system. Elevated serum AST and ALT levels suggest liver inflammation and hepatocellular injury, but are nonspecific. An elevated serum alkaline phosphatase level suggests cholestasis, whereas a decreased serum albumin level and or prolonged prothrombin time suggests diminished liver synthetic function and thus hepatocellular injury and or liver failure. Time for a basic science clinical pearl. ASD and ALT are often referred to as liver function tests. However, they are neither specific to the liver nor its function. These enzymes are also found in red blood cells and muscle cells. Also, when the liver is cirrhotic, transaminase levels are often normal or low due to low hepatocyte volume. Another clinical pearl, hepatocellular liver injury usually has greater elevations in AST and ALT levels, usually more than 500. Cholestatic liver injury has a more severe elevation in bilirubin and AP levels with lesser elevations of aminotransferase levels. Case point 39.2. The patient's serum chemistry panel reveals the following. An AST of 1,381, with normal ranges being 10 to 40. ALT of 1,752, with normal ranges being 7 to 56. Total protein of 9, with normal ranges being 6 to 8.3. Albumin of 3.0, with normal ranges being 3.5 to 5.5. Total bilirubin of 6.0, with normal range being less than 
and direct bilirubin of 4.0 with normal being less than 0.3. Alkaline phosphatase is normal and PT is normal. Viral serologies are negative. The serum acetaminophen level is undetectable and urine pregnancy test is negative. So at this point, what radiographic imaging would you do? An abdominal ultrasound would be helpful to examine liver and spleen anatomy and to look for gallstones and ascites. A Doppler investigation should be done to look at flow through the hepatic, portal, and splenic veins. Case point 39.3. Her abdominal ultrasound demonstrates a slightly enlarged liver and spleen without gallstones, ascites, or abnormal portal venous flow. So what further workup would you do at this point? Given that common infections, acetaminophen overdose, gallstones, and pregnancy have been ruled out, workup for alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, autoimmune hepatitis, Wilson's disease should be started. Her age, gender, family history of SLE, an elevated globulin fraction put autoimmune hepatitis at the top of the differential. Time for a basic science clinical pearl. The globulin fraction is calculated by subtracting the albumin from the total protein. A high globulin fraction suggests increased amounts of circulating antibodies, suggestive of an autoimmune disease or paraproteinemia. Paraproteinemia is the elevation of a single monoclonal gamma globulin in the blood due to an underlying hematologic malignancy. It is extremely rare in the pediatric population. Case point 39.4. Further laboratory investigation reveals a seroloplasmin level of 40, usually less than 20 in Wilson disease, and no mutation in her serpin. A1 gene. Antibody screening detects antinuclear antibodies, or ANAs, at 1 to 80 titer, and anti-smooth muscle antibody, or SMA. Anti-liver kidney microsomal antibody, also known as LKM1, is not detected. Time for basic science or clinical pearl. ANA can be positive in many autoimmune diseases, such as SLE, scleroderma, polymyositis, dermatomyositis, rheumatoid arthritis, Sjogren's syndrome, and mixed connective tissue diseases. Smooth muscle antibody can also be seen in some cancers and in primary biliary cirrhosis. So what is your next step? The patient's laboratory test results are highly suggestive of autoimmune hepatitis. Liver biopsy is required for confirmation. Case point 39.5. The patient has a percutaneous liver biopsy done under ultrasound guidance. It demonstrates an interface hepatitis with lymphocytic infiltration and hepatocyte necrosis, which you can see in figure 39.1. This confirms our diagnosis of autoimmune hepatitis. So what is autoimmune hepatitis? It is a chronic inflammatory disorder of the liver thought to be caused by an environmental trigger in a genetically susceptible individual. 
It is more common in females and is diagnosed by typical clinical presentation, liver histology, and positive autoantibodies, including ANA, SMA, LKM1, and anti-liver cytosol type 1 antibody known as LC1. There are two main types of autoimmune hepatitis associated with specific ages, autoantibodies, and human leukocyte antigens or HLA types. Both types overwhelmingly occur in females. Type 1 autoimmune hepatitis has bimodal peaks between ages 10 to 20 and 45 to 70 years, has positive ANA and SMA, and is associated with HLA B8, DR3, and DR4. Type 2 autoimmune hepatitis peaks at ages 2 to 14 years, has positive LKM1, and is associated with HLA B14 and DR3. Our patient's laboratory test results are more consistent with type 1 autoimmune hepatitis, which has a better prognosis. So how does autoimmune hepatitis present? The true incidence and prevalence of autoimmune hepatitis in the United States is not known. Type 1 autoimmune hepatitis, which represents 80% of cases, may present anywhere from asymptomatic elevations of transaminase levels, in 25% it's found in routine chemistries, all the way to cirrhosis with portal hypertension and or liver failure, Type 2 autoimmune hepatitis usually presents with fulminant liver failure in children and has a worse prognosis. If symptoms are present, the most common are generalized malaise and fatigue, vague abdominal pain, joint pain, and occasionally jaundice. Patients in liver failure may present with a first variceal hemorrhage, ascites, and peripheral edema, and hepatic encephalopathy. So how is autoimmune hepatitis diagnosed? Criteria for the diagnosis of autoimmune hepatitis are shown in table 39.1. Diseases that should be ruled out before diagnosis of autoimmune hepatitis is considered include, as mentioned before, hepatitis A, hepatitis B, hepatitis C, HIV, EBV, and CMV infection should also rule out Wilson disease and alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency. In adults, hemochromatosis should be ruled out, and obese females should be checked for gallstones and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease by abdominal ultrasound. Serum acetaminophen levels and urine pregnancy tests should also be routine. A thorough history of prescription medication use, illicit drug use, blood transfusions, and alcohol ingestion is also important. An algorithm for the diagnosis of autoimmune hepatitis is presented in figure 39.2. So how is autoimmune hepatitis treated? Once diagnosis is confirmed, treatment should be considered in all patients, including those who are asymptomatic. There are two phases of treatment, induction and maintenance, which may use different medications. The goal of induction therapy is to induce clinical remission. Maintenance therapy is used to preserve remission. The gold standard of treatment in pediatrics is induction therapy with a glucocorticoid 
for example, prednisolone, and concomitant maintenance therapy with azathioprine. This combination achieves remission in 80% of patients. Second-line therapies include mycophenolate, mofetil, and or tacrolimus with prednisolone. Remission is defined as a normalization of serum aminotransferase levels, a normal level of IgG, and an inactive liver histology. After three years of remission, treatment withdrawal can be attempted. However, reinduction therapy may be more difficult than with the first induction therapy. Time for a clinical pearl. Pediatric patients are more likely to fail conventional therapy for autoimmune hepatitis than older adults. Case point 39.6. This patient is started on oral prednisone and azathioprine. Her symptoms of fatigue and general malaise improve within the first three days of treatment. Her transaminase levels normalize within one month, and her bilirubin normalizes in three months. Time for Beyond the Pearls. Autoimmune hepatitis is more likely to present with cirrhosis in persons of African descent or Hispanic ethnicity in comparison to white European descent. They are also most likely to have liver failure and or a need for liver transplantation at diagnosis. Patients can satisfy criteria for autoimmune hepatitis but lack detectable autoantibodies. Such patients are labeled with cryptogenic disease but may still respond to immunosuppressive therapies. Autoimmune hepatitis can be associated with other autoimmune diseases, such as autoimmune thyroid disease, for example, grave disease, Hashimoto thyroiditis, ulcerative colitis, idiopathic thrombocytopenia, hemolytic anemia, type 1 diabetes, celiac disease, and autoimmune polyendocrinopathy, candidiasis, ectodermal dystrophy, also known as APCED. Drug-induced autoimmune hepatitis may result from exposure to certain drugs such as nitrofurantoin, minocyclins, isoniazid, propylthiouracil, and infliximab. Although drug withdrawal ultimately treats the disease, glucocorticoids should still be used in initial therapy. Overlapping autoimmune disease of the liver can occur in pediatrics such as PSC autoimmune hepatitis overlap syndrome. In these cases, all the criteria for both autoimmune hepatitis and primary sclerosing cholangitis are met. Diagnostic criteria for this biliary tract disease include AP or gamma-glutamyl transpeptidase, GGT, five times the upper limit of normal and histologic or radiographic evidence of large bile duct disease. PBCAIH overlap can be seen in adult patients. Patients with evidence of end-stage liver disease due to autoimmune hepatitis are less likely to respond to conventional glucocorticoid therapy. Prior to initiation of azathioprine for autoimmune hepatitis, patients should be checked for blood tests for polymorphisms in the TPMT gene. TPMT encodes for thioprine, thiopurine methyltransferase, an enzyme that metabolizes thiopurines. 
Loss of thiopurine methyltransferase results in excessive bone marrow toxicity, leading to cytopenias, sepsis, and even death. In patients with homozygous TPMT mutations, resulting in negligible concentrations of this enzyme, azathioprine should be avoided. So time for a case summary. So what was our complaint or history? A 17-year-old previously healthy female presents with one week of fatigue, malaise, and diffuse body aches and yellow eyes. Our findings were scleral icterus and jaundice, hepatomegaly with a liver edge three centimeters below the right costal margin that is non-tender and soft. Labs and tests that we did, serum anti-nuclear antibodies and anti-smooth muscle antibodies are detected. Percutaneous liver biopsy demonstrated an interface hepatitis with lymphocytic infiltration and hepatocyte necrosis. Our diagnosis was autoimmune hepatitis, and our treatment was oral prednisone and azathioprine. And that concludes our case. Again, this is Parasu Khalesi. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical advice. Ars longa, vita brevis.